Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Ha'azinu, uh, always read at this time. Uh, we are reading the final words of Moshe to the people before they're going to cross over the Jordan. So we've been studying a lot um, about Deuteronomy and the Deuteronomist's message and the Deuteronomist's agenda. Uh, Hazinu leaves that. Hazinu is most likely very old. Scholars debate how old, and they, you know, biblical scholars, like all scholars, love to argue um, about stuff. So they argue about how old this is. But based on syntax and based on certain uses of words that we don't understand anymore by the biblical period, um, it is clear that this is old. Possibly, if you look at some scholars argue, a lot of scholars argue that, um, that it might be as old as the period of the judges, which is 11th century BCE. So figure if this is if Deuteronomy and the Deuteronomist is writing around 622 you're talking 1100 you're talking a poem that is 500 years older than Deuteronomy so um so it is put here at the end of Deuteronomy probably because it was traditionally uh put in the mouth of Moshe before the people crossed over uh, but then Deuteronomy came along so you you put Ha'azinu, you put the poem at the end of uh, the book of Deuteronomy. It does fit pretty well with the Deuteronomist's theology. Um, and so for those of you who have not studied with me before um, until recently, you need to know that Hebrew poetry is not about rhyme and it's not about meter. Biblical poetry is about saying the same thing two different ways. So they are collections of two lines, often, um, where you're saying the same thing, but in different words. That That's how biblical poetry is considered, whatever words you want to use about poetry that's good, clever, beautiful, whatever. Um, and so this poem is no different. You'll see it as soon as the poem opens. The other thing about this poem is that there are lines that are not very easily interpreted the way it's written. So either some things got scrambled and confused over the many, 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 many years it was copied. Uh, but, you know, they didn't have a printing press, right? So, so a scribe had to copy it. So either things got garbled while people were copying the text or... Uh, some, like well, I'm going to be reading from Robert Alter from his um, translation of the Hebrew Bible. And Robert Alter believes, like many scholars, uh, that the Deuteronomist or whoever is editing Ha'azinu doesn't like some of the older references and some of the older ways of talking about things that it's heretical to the Deuteronomist or to later, it may not be the Deuteronomist, but to later redactors um, who therefore purposefully changed the words uh, because they didn't like, they didn't like what, what it said. All right. So let's jump in. 
All right, so here we are. So I'm going to try to do this. I don't know if I can figure this out. I'm going to try to read Robert Alter's translation. You're going to look at the JPS translation and see, right, like see the differences. If we were together, this would be way easier, obviously, because I wouldn't have to do both of these things. So, um, but, but you know that I like to do this sometimes so that you can see the different translations because it's Hebrew and it's tangled Hebrew. And it's really archaic Hebrew. So you read a translation and you think that's what it means until you hear someone else go, uh, that's not what that means. <laughs> so, so just to give you an appreciation that not, it's not so clear. And we read the translation and we forget that we're reading somebody else's interpretation of the Hebrew. So here we go. So give ear, O heavens, that I may speak. And let the earth hear my mouth's utterances. Let my teaching drop like rain, my saying flow like dew, like showers on the green and like cloud bursts on the grass. So if you want to make notes about where you want to comment on differences or ask questions, that's totally cool. I'm just going to keep going for a bit here. For the name of the Lord do I call Hail greatness for our God. The rock, his acts are perfect for all his ways are justice. A steadfast God without wrong, true and right is he. Here, here we go. Here comes, here comes one of the disagreements. Did he act ruinously? No. His son's the fault. A perverse and twisted brood. To the Lord will you requite thus base and unwise people. Is he not your father, your shaper? He made you and set you unshaken. Remember the days of old. Give thought to the years of times past. Ask your father that he may tell you, your elders, that they may say to you, when Elyon gave estates to nations, when he split up the sons of man, he set out the boundaries of peoples by the number of the sundry gods. Another big disagreement right there. Yes, the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, the parcel of his estate. He found him in the wilderness land, in the waste of the howling desert. He encircled him, gave mind to him, watched him like the apple of his eye. Like an eagle who rouses his nest over his fledglings, he hovers. He spread his wings. He took him. He bore him on his pinion. The Lord alone did lead him, no alien God by his side. He set him down on the heights of the land, and he ate the bounty of the field. He suckled him honey from the crag and oil from the flinty stone. Cattle's curd and milk of the flocks with the fat of lambs. And rams of Bashan and he goats with the fat of kernels of wheat and the blood of the grape you drank as mead. And Yushurun fattened and kicked. You fattened, you thickened, grew gross, 
and abandoned the God who made him and despised the rock of his rescue. He provoked him with strangers, with abhorrences he did vex him. They sacrificed to the demons, the ungods, gods they had not known, new ones just come lately whom their fathers had not feared. The rock, your bearer, you neglected. You forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw and he spurned from the vexation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, let me hide my face from them. I shall see what their end will be. For a wayward brood are they, children with no trust in them. They provoked me with an ungod. They vexed me with their empty things. And I, I will provoke them with an unpeople, with a base nation will I vex them. For fire has flared in my nostrils and blazed to shale down below, eaten up earth and its yield and kindled the mountain's foundations. Verse 23, I will sweep down evils upon them, my arrows spending against them, wasted with famine, withered by blight and bitter scourge, and the fang of beasts will I send against them with the venom of creepers in the dust. Outside will the sword bereave, and within chambers, terror, both youth and virgin, suckling and gray-haired man. I would have said, let me wipe them out. Let me make their names cease among men. Had I not feared the foe's provocation, lest their enemies dissemble, lest they say our hand was high and not the Lord has wrought all this. For a nation lost in counsel are they. There is no understanding in them. Were they wise, they would give mind to this, understand their latter days. Oh, how could one chase a thousand or two put 10,000 to flight? Had not their rock handed them over, had the Lord not given them up? For not like our rock is their rock, our enemies would be gods. Yes, Sodom's vine is their vine from the vineyards of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison, death, bitter clusters they have, venom of vipers their wine, and pitiless poisons of asps. Look, it is concealed with me, sealed up in my stores. Mine is vengeance, requital, at the moment their foot will slip. For their day of disaster is close. What is readied then swiftly comes. Yes, the Lord, where am I? 36. Yes, the Lord champions his people for his servants. He shows change of heart when he sees that power is gone. No ruler or helper remains. He will say, what are, where are their gods? The rock in whom they sheltered, who ate the fat of their offerings, drank their libation wine. Let them arise and help you be over you as a shield. See then. See now that I, I am he, and no God is by my side. I put to death and give life. I smash and I also heal, and none rescues from my hand. When I raise to the heavens my hand and say, as I live forever, 
when I hone the flash of my sword and my hand takes hold of justice, I will bring back vengeance to my foes and my enemies I will requite. We're almost done with the poem. I will make my shafts drunk with blood and my sword will eat up flesh from the blood of the fallen and captive, from the flesh of the long-haired foe. Nations, O oh, gladden his people for his servant's blood will he avenge and vengeance turn back on his foes and purge his soil, his people. All right. So it is intended to be terrifying. It is intended to be horrifying. It's intended to be terrible. It is intended to say God is just. And when you see horrible things happen, we know this theology, right? We know this theology. We understand it very well. When you see terrible things happen, it's because they are warranted. Because humanity brought it upon themselves. This is classic. This is old. This is very old uh, theology, but it's also the theology of the Deuteronomist, right? It's like it's it stays there during the period of the Bible and the period of the Bible's a big period. If we're talking here, this text 1100 BCE, and then we're talking 622 Deuteronomy is written. That's a long time, and some of the other materials even older. So it's a very long time that the Bible, the span of the writing of the Bible, covers, or how how many eras the, the literature is taken from that forms the Hebrew Bible. Um, but what doesn't change is how do you explain what happens when good people suffer? That doesn't change throughout the entire biblical period. And the answer remains the same. We've talked about this a lot. The answer stays the same. There's no major shift in the theology, when it comes to Tzidu Kadin, which is what this is referred to as, the, you know, that Tzidu Kadin, the judge is just. God is a righteous judge. What do we say when somebody dies? Baruch Dayan HaEmes. Blessed be the judge of truth, the true judge. Baruch Dayan HaEmet. So whenever I get an email and the subject line says, Baruch Dayan HaEmet, it means somebody's dead. So, um, so anybody have any questions or comments having set up that? So what do we make of that today when we don't accept that hurricanes and COVID are punishment for doing bad stuff? What do we make of what? Biblical theology? Well, what do we make of, how does this speak to us at all? How do we reconstruct, reinterpret this? We don't. To make sense rather than just saying that we reject it entirely. We don't. I don't. I look at it and say, this is how ancient Israel understood the calamities that happened in the ancient world to really innocent people. Right? They see another people get crushed. Their neighbors get crushed in war. And then they're taken as slaves. This, this was the reality that they lived in. And for me, it's like, okay, so I get it that this is, this is how they explain things. And so that's why it's here. I, I don't, I don't need to reconstruct this. Um, I think there's some beautiful images in here. There's some really beautiful imagery. It's really interesting that a word like suckled is used, right? I suckled you from the rock. It's like, huh? 
right? So I like that's an interesting. I think that's interesting. You know, like <laughs> you don't generally think of a rock as something that would suckle somebody, right? So um, probably it means honey suckled you with honey from the crags and the rocks. So honeycombs grow in the breaks in the rocks. And uh, oil, you know, from the flint, from flintstone, um, possibly that the olive trees that grow uh, in really, really rocky areas. So we can explain where these images come from, but it's kind of like, um, just I just think that's interesting. I love the imagery of God as a huge bird, you know, that, that shelters the nestlings, right, and f- helps them fledge. Um, so, you know, there's some really beautiful imagery in here, but the, the ultimate message of the poem is don't screw up and don't cheat on me with no gods, with empty gods, low, 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 they're not even gods. They're, they're like fake phony things. And so don't, <coughs> don't step out on me. We have a covenant. We have an arrangement. You are set aside, people Israel, for me exclusively. Although my teacher from Hartman, Dr. Israel Knoll, who is a um, Bible expert, early biblical text expert, um, points to the place here where it says that we are God's allotment. And he says that in Elyon, God is called Elyon, right? And that is it, that's from Ugaritic. That is from pre-Israelite uh, texts. So Elyon, the god of Ugarit, they adopt that name for the head of the Ugaritic pantheon. They adopt that as one of the names of Yudhe because that's how you get those folks who followed Elyon to be part of your enterprise. And so... Um, so he talks about Elyon, and so already that takes us back to pre-Israelite, uh, what is it if you're not monotheist? Polytheism. It takes us back to polytheism. And here's what's interesting that Knoll says. Knoll says there's a lottery among the gods, and yud he gets Israel. That God, God, well, you could say won or lost the lottery, in getting the people Israel as God's apportioned people. And um, so he has some very interesting stuff to say about that, which I think is fascinating. If you, if you read it that way, it changes a lot, right? It, it's, it means God kind of got us by accident, you know, and decides, okay, this is the one I'm stuck with. Fine. You know, I guess that's who I'll marry. Um, and so enters into this covenant, but it's completely antithetical, right, to all the rabbinic literature that says, you know, God went to every other people or, or you know, whatever. So um, that we are, you know, chosen, that we are so segula, we are a precious whatever. And really, if you look closely at some of these older, older, older texts, there was a lottery. <laughs> God got stuck with the Jewish people. Judah? So does this give us an example of the Torah, not just this poem, but in many other instances, an example of the mythology of our people, the anthropological tool to use to see the vastness of the understanding over the thousands of years of the different voices and the different tools that were used to explain who we are? 
say more? Well, clearly, we can't account for this, but it's used, many things in the Torah are used against us by people to say, oh, so this is what the Jews believe. But it's really not, it's just a tool, one little page of our history that we can disagree with, among others, actually. It's a tool for us to look at the, the diversity of the writings over the thousands of years. So the, yeah, so you, but you have to already not be a fundamentalist to do right. that. Right? right. So a lot of people who want to say, oh, here's what the Jews believe, right? Would, yes. would not accept saying, yeah, but this was written super early, like super, super, super early. They would say, what are you talking about? It's so what? God. Right. It's all one. You can't, you can't separate it out. So you can only have that conversation with people who are already not going to take this as fundamentally, literally true. Including the Orthodox then? Including the Orthodox. Yes. Okay. Right. So they, they won't, they won't acknowledge that this is written pre pre monarchy, probably when, when we were still a loose confederation of 12 tribes written probably in the period of the judges there, there, it makes no sense to them. That's heresy. It's all Torah from God on Sinai. So, um, so what do they do with this then? Well, they believe this though, right? They believe Tzidu Kadin. They stand at the graveside and say Tzidu Kadin, that God is just. They have all this litter, all of this liturgy at the graveside about God being righteous, God being the true judge, God being, you know, pure, God being tamim po'alog, perfect are God's works, because that's how they cope with the, the tragedy of death, is that God is perfect and doesn't make mistakes. So this is fine for them, right? For them, remember... Well, you what, get what you deserve. Yes, yes. And if, and if not, it's because we can't understand it. God understands, you know, but we, we can't understand why an eight-year-old would die. Well, that's right? kind of an, an easy excuse then for anything that you don't agree with or anything that doesn't make intellectual sense. It's that we just don't understand. Of course. Okay. Yes. And so, so, so they're fine with this. They use lines of this in the funeral liturgy. Sadiq Tamim Poalo, those very words come from this poem. They use it. They pray these words at the graveside. So not only are they okay with it, they still find comfort. Some people still find comfort. Look, I wish I had that kind of comfort. <laughs> right? I wish I believed that. <laughs> it would make life a whole lot easier, wouldn't it? Yes so- and no. <laughs> I just think it's interesting that it's here at all that, you know, I've been in Torah study a while, so correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think Moses has a song, has a poetry at any other time. Is that right? Uh, well, we have the song of the sea, Azia Shir Moshe. It's a tribute. Oh, okay. Yes. When it, oh, okay. So anyway, I just think that it's interesting that it's here. I don't know why I think that's so interesting. I think right before you got to go die or whatever you, it sort of reminds me of Jonah in the belly of the whale, you know, he's writing songs. I just think it's interesting that it's here. And um, 
I think it's, um, I don't know. There, there, there was just a lot of, don't ever forget. This is who this is. Blah, 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 blah. You better obey. Look what can happen. And don't forget he suckled you. <laughs> so a big guilt trip. So some Not of it is like, the way and, and prosper. And, so some of it is like Judith said, it's our foundation mythology, right? Some of it is you better not mess up, right? Yeah. You're in big, 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 big trouble. Um, and so, so probably, probably it was, it's so old that you couldn't have a collection of sacred texts without it. Mm. That is most likely what happened, right? That it, if it becomes part of your foundational narrative as a people, early than any version of your sacred collection has to include it. The question is, where does it go? Right. So so they put it in the mouth of Moshe right at the end of Deuteronomy, but it's probably been part of the canon, you know, of, of, of Israelite sacred texts for a very, 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 very long time, all the way back to before they were a nation. When they were, you know, right, just a, a loose alliance of 12 tribes in the region. Um, and Melinda says, it's also a helpful thing to convince people when you're trying to form an early society, which is an excellent, excellent point. Another reason it would have stayed in the canon is if you're trying to form a nation state, you need something that holds you together. And so your sacred mythology and your sacred literature around that is one of those ways to have people buy in and to opt in. So for sure, right, that is what happens to these 12 tribes. They, they eventually become uh, a nation state under a monarchy, under Saul. All right, so here's what I thought we'd do. I thought it would be fun to look at a little bit of other poetry. We looked at biblical poetry. So I thought, well, let's, that's not poetry that necessarily speaks so much to us. What if we read a little bit of poetry that does? So I'm going to start with Marge Piercy from her book, The Art of Blessing the Day, which is her, the collection of Marge Piercy's Jewish poetry. Um, so, uh, so poetry for kind of this time of year and what's happening uh, right now, so poetry that does maybe speak to our milieu and to our moment and to our experiences. So Marge Piercy, the head of the year. The moon is dark tonight, a new moon for a new year. It is hollow and hungers to be full. It is the black zero of beginning. Now you must void yourself of injuries, insults, incursions, Go with empty hands to those you have hurt and make amends. It is not too late. It is early and about to grow. Now is the time to do what you know you must and have feared to begin. Your face is dark, too, as you turn inward to face yourself, the hidden twin of all you must grow to be. Forgive the dead year. Forgive yourself. What will be wants to push through your fingers. The light you seek hides in your belly. The light you crave 
longs to stream from your eyes. You are the moon that will wax in new goodness. All right, and this is from, as you know, one of my favorite of all times, one of my favorite poets of all time, um, Ruth Brin of Blessed Memory. She was about the size of the late Justice Ginsburg. Uh, she was tiny, 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 tiny. Um, and when she opened her mouth, just the whole room stopped, like just total silence. Um, she was just a gifted, gifted uh, teacher and orator. So uh, Ruth Brin of Blessed Memory, the Minneapolis poet, for the blessings. For the blessings which you lavish upon us in forest and sea, in mountain and meadow, in rain and sun, we thank you. For the blessings you implant within us, joy and peace, meditation and laughter, we are grateful to you. For the blessings of friendship and love, of family and community, for the blessings we ask of you and those we cannot ask, for the blessings you bestow upon us openly and those you give us in secret. For all these blessings, O Lord of the universe, we thank you and are grateful to you. For the blessings we recognize and those we fail to recognize. For the blessings of our tradition and of our holy days. For the blessings of return and forgiveness, of memory, of vision, and of hope. For all these blessings which surround us on every side, dear God, hear our thanks and accept our gratitude. If you look in our machzor, you'll see the the alternative achet that we usually read at the high holidays, and it's Ruth Brin's alternative achet that we generally read. This is in memory of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, When Great Trees Fall by Maya Angelou. When great trees fall, rocks on distant hills shudder, lions hunker down in tall grasses, and even elephants lumber after safety. When great trees fall in forests, small things recoil into silence, their senses eroded beyond fear. When great souls die, the air around us becomes light, rare, sterile. We breathe briefly. Our eyes briefly see with a hurtful clarity. Our memory suddenly sharpened, examines, gnaws on kind words unsaid, promised walks never taken. Great souls die and our reality bound to them. Our souls dependent upon their nurture now shrink, wizened. Our minds formed and informed by their radiance fall away. We are not so much maddened as reduced to the unutterable ignorance of dark, cold caves. And when great souls die, after a period, peace blooms slowly and allularly. Spaces fill with a kind of soothing electric vibration. Our senses restored, never to be the same, whisper to us. They existed. They existed. 
we can be, be and be better for they existed. And this is by Martha Hertz, Hurwitz called Visiting the King During a Plague. Avina Malkenu, I'm sad you had to withdraw your invitation to visit your palace this year. Believe me, I understand how difficult it is to clean up after a plague has torn through your house. Our mothers spent many years on their knees scrubbing demons from the corners of the room, boiling blankets and sheets, whispering prayers for healing as they toiled to prevent loss of another child. Avinu Malkinu, I appreciate your offer to come to my home instead. Only a king like you would be willing to temper majesty and visit a humble woman in her tent. That is why I love you. Other kings would command a journey to their palace, even when plague is raging, would not concern themselves with risk to their loyal subjects. Only you are compassionate enough to travel here and mask your face to shelter me from harm. Avinu Malkinu, I would love to welcome you into my tent, but I do not feel it is worthy of your presence. I too have spent years scrubbing away demons, but only a blind man would call it a palace. I'm wondering, please do not consider this disrespectful, but would it be possible for Shekhinah to visit instead? Shekhinah, our mother, would understand, even though I would still be embarrassed. The dust I missed still lingering in the corners, the dirt my beloved child just tracked into the house. She would understand the stain of food and other things I don't want to mention on the white clothes I was planning to wear when I visited you. Shekhina can travel without attendant angels and other officials necessary for a king to venture forth from the palace. I would welcome her to my small, humble garden. We could sit among flowers, breathe in sweet air, share things most important to mothers and daughters. I promise this year to put away the new white garments, carefully cleaned and pressed with devotion. Next year, please, God, I will wrap myself in them, travel to your palace, enter with unbridled joy, your holy sanctuary. So some beautiful thoughts and words from folks holding and facing this moment, right, that, that we're in, the poetry of this moment, the pathos of this moment. Um, and uh, every now and then, we have a High Holy Days that, like, jumps out, <laughs> you know, and stands out. And I have to say, <laughs> this is going to be one of them for me. Uh, for sure, right? So, you know, just all of the mix of sadness at not being together, not being able to be in the sanctuary, not being in our sacred home together, just all, yet the sweetness of so many of us gathering virtually, the technology and the ability to do that, which they couldn't do in the last pandemic. Um, And, you know, the relative comfort of our, Quarantine. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg dying era of Rosh Hashanah. Right, that's going to stay with me always. It's always going to be her yard site, of course. Uh, so, so I shared with you words like ancient words of poetry, but also now you know some modern words of poetry, and just wanting to hear a little bit from y'all about 
holding this moment. Um, right? It's a kind of a crazy, crazy confluence of stuff these at this high holiday time between pandemic and so many other things happening, the election coming and all of the anxiety and tension around the election and around just so many things. And like I said, Ruth Bader Ginsburg dying, Arab Rosh Hashanah, just so there's just so much happening. And so these are some, I shared with you some uh, poetry written this year around these moments and uh, other people's reflections. So just wanting to see if there's anything anybody wants to share in reflecting on this moment, these high holidays. Bob? Maybe it seems to me that Yom Kippur and really things like um, Yashamnu and, and everything like that really takes off from the portion that you read today because mm-hmm. part of the traditional liturgy is that if you do bad, something bad is going to happen to you. So um, it seems that whether we like it or not, it is lasting to present day. So the the good news is I, I, I can't really reconstruct Ha'azinu, that poem, but I can reconstruct the language around the liturgy that we use that is similar maybe in, in the originating theology for that liturgy, I can reconstruct that because I can understand being written in the book of life or the book of death as a metaphor. Like that I can do. I can say, okay, somebody else may have understood this who wrote it literally, but I don't. I don't think anyone writes me in anything. It is still really moving liturgy for me to to pray about like living in such a way that I write myself into the book of life. And uh, Iris Stone, Rabbi Iris Stone calls sin moments of death in life. So, and I don't, and by sin, I mean the Jewish sense, not the Christian sense, right? So I mean the Jewish sense of, of wrongdoing, whether it's intentional or not, that, um, that this idea that, that if, if sin is death in life, right, then if I write myself into the book of life, I also have the choice to write myself into the book of death, right, for the coming year. And it's about how do I stay, how do I keep moments of life, moments of life and not death in life. And um, so for me, those metaphors work still um, really beautifully and powerfully. And um, my my rabbi and teacher uh, from rabbinical school has a beautiful piece on the imagery of God as king, which we use at Rosh Hashanah, of course. Um, and this whole idea, and he, Rabbi Dr. Jacob Staub, he says, and I think it's really true, he says, look, my theology and I myself am a collection of inconsistencies, right? And so the, the turning to something much bigger than us acknowledging that things are beyond our control. The language of king or queen of heaven is still powerful imagery, even if we don't believe it literally, that it's still to turn to the queen of heaven and say, I'm sorry, I'm going to try to do better and I need your help. I don't believe literally most of those words, it doesn't stop the powerful sense of turning to something so much bigger, right? And, and acknowledging something so much bigger and asking for help. 
it's still, but that's me. Like I obviously look what I do for a living. Right. So, but, um, and so he said, like, it's not that I believe God is a king and God controls everything, but my, my human need is sometimes to turn to Avinu, our father, Imenu, our mother, like, you know, and, and pray from that place because we're human. So it's how I live with a lot, not only live with it, but celebrate a lot of the liturgy that we have at this time of year. Is it what I would have written? No, maybe not. But sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> like, um, anyway, so, so, so fortunately, I can reconstruct a lot of the language. It seems a little similar to, to the theology we, we read today. But certainly there are people who pray those words today who believe them to be literally true, that they will be written in the book of life or the book of death. I'm not saying there aren't people who believe that, but most Reconstructionists don't. And, and we don't teach it that way and we don't preach it that way. Amy, I, I don't think I'm muted right now. You're not. For all that we miss about being together on the holidays, what you and the entire staff gave us for the holidays was such a wonderful gift. I, I think many of us felt that closeness, even from afar, you made it seem like a gathering of us in person. And I, for one, had tears running down my face in a few places just from the beauty of what you you and Haim and all the other people who were participating gave us. So thank you so much for making the holiday successful and wonderful. I'm glad to hear. I'm really glad to hear. Yes, Amy, I agree. It was the most moving, wonderful experience. Thank you very, very much. It means a lot. You put a lot into it. Beautiful. I would, I would agree and, and just add one other thing. I think the question, at least for me, is not do I take these words literally or not. We can get hung up on that and get hung up on Orthodox and fundamentalist and whatever. The real question is, do we take Yom Kippur seriously? Do we take these high holy days seriously? They are a gift that has been passed to us by generations and generations of people who found them meaningful, probably in a way that we can't understand. In in some ways we can't understand, and in some ways we can. But I think the issue is, do we take it seriously? Do we do a neshbon hanefesh? Do we look at ourselves? Do we take this as an opportunity to grow, no matter what language we use? And so I, I try not to get hung up on the language and uh, know that for people in the past, there was real meaning there and they were not stupid and they weren't idiotic. And if I don't understand the language, maybe there's an emotion, maybe there's some principle, maybe there's something underneath it that I can't understand. Okay, but that's already an acceptance that you're going to stay with the language. Because there's a lot of people who would say, I can take the holiday seriously, but I'm dumping the machzor. Forget all <laughs> these stupid prayers I don't believe. Forget it. I'm not doing it. Right? No, so I there's, said, there's, a, there's a lot of that in the Jewish world. Right. I start with the language. And then, as you say, we can decide what we can and we can't use. But it, it nevertheless, it's not just stupid. 
Right. And I don't think anyone would say it is. Right. It's not just some people would say it's objectionable. Some people would say, I don't believe it. I'm not going to say it. I don't think anyone says it's stupid. Um, Right. I heard, I heard a, a, uh, actually, this is a, 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 a woman rabbi talk about how her mother every year was so disturbed by Unatana Tokev. Her mother had cancer. And her mother kept on saying every year, what have I done to deserve this? What, what, what did I do? What mistakes did I made, make? And this rabbi, it's actually a conservative female rabbi, said, that's why I can't pray that prayer. Right. Because it just doesn't, it just, it just doesn't work for me. Right. But again, I guess my point is just because we can't deal with the language, we shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. I mean, I, I want to say that also, you know, we talk about tradition. That's what we are all about, the tradition. You know, when I was a kid, we would go, uh, my family, we'd go to the Shrine Auditorium because I think Temple Israel didn't didn't seat enough. So we'd go to the Shrine Auditorium and immediately my girlfriends and I would walk out and go get ice cream or whatever we did. But it was just going there. It's just that we knew we had to go there. And in those days, of course, it was not air conditioned. So um, that we knew we had to go there. So the words aside, it takes on new meaning that you go and that you sometimes you stay for all day. And sometimes you just say, oh, I'm only going to go to Yisker. Or I'm only going to, um, but it becomes, you know, I just remember my kids taking them to the veterans and they'd sit and play cards in the lobby. But it was just the tradition of going. And as you grow, maybe the words are less important than what is tradition for us. Right. And as human beings, we understand the importance of gathering, right? Yes. Whether, whether we relate to it so much or not, we get it. Like right. that, it's, that it's time to gather and you don't have to like it. You can play and cards, you, but you you're play cards because it's time to gather, right? And it's like, background you hear the songs right like poor eliana i said "Uh, uh-uh, you're going to be in the sanctuary sorry like you know you're not going to be you're going to be sitting in the sanctuary just like always margo um this just makes me think of a time when rabbi arthur green went on a uh, retreat with our, our synagogue many 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 years ago and someone asked him a similar question to how do you deal with the language? And he was trying to, you know, explain that. And very simply, he said, I step in and I step out when I feel that I have, you know, it's just a statement that I remember that you can hear the language, but you have to pick out of that what important i guess to you to you right i just the same the same as with the music that we do right some music speaks to some people some of it doesn't right you know it doesn't doesn't mean we leave the theater because we don't like this particular piece although sometimes i'm tempted um so it's uh, don't tell anybody but um so it's you know i mean it's the same like some language speaks to some people and not to others some metaphors some music some piece Hopefully we have enough pieces that speak to enough people that services are meaningful. 
Um, so I saw Dana's hand and Richard Rajay. So Dana. So I was just reflecting that, you know, the kids might play cards or sit in the back of the sanctuary, but then when they grow up, the question is, are they going to come back and will they hear their own, will they listen on their own? And I think it's certainly, and it's not a challenge for me, but I would think it's a challenge for each individual Jewish community. I mean, you can say, I mean, Ars de Green can say, oh, I, I listen to some words and not others. Are you going to tell a college kid, listen to some things and not others? It's, it's kind of not, a, you know, the answer that works for me. Well, part of it is about giving people experiences, right? It, giving them experiences that they're going to want for their kid. They may not want it in college. I didn't have much to do with Judaism in college at all. I, I wasn't talking to the Jewish God in college. I was done with the Jewish God. Done. So, because I came out at 16 in an Orthodox setting. So, well, I left. I didn't come out. I left. So, and I left. <laughs> so, um, it may not be in college, right? But if, but if, if we give them Kishka Judaism of any kind, again, the importance of gathering, right? Like you get it. How many, how many people love Christmas who don't care anything about Christ? Tons, right? And all the music they love is written by Jews, right? But what are they love? They love the decorations. They love the season. They love, I'm dreaming. Jews, Jews. So, um, right? They, they love the tree and the smell and the memories, the memories of doing that with their grandparents or their parents and what they ate and, and what the smells in the house and the favorite cookies that get baked at that time of year. That's Kishka Christianity. And we have to give our kids some kind of Kishka Judaism that hopefully they'll re-engage after they're maybe graduating college and even grad school and whatever, whether they have kids or not. But I mean, kids is a big part of it, right? Look, tra- passing on the tradition is a big part of why people come back. But also hopefully there's something that lives there that it's that time of year to go where we used to play cards. Right? It's, <laughs> it's that time. And then, then they start to engage I want to step in here. I like this. Or, you know what? I'm going to step out here. This one, not so much. And that changes. If they stay around, that often changes the, the things we read ourselves into and the things we read ourselves out of, right? The more life experience we have, the different things start to speak to us in, in different ways. So I get it, Dana, that it's not the answer all the time. But like and Melinda says, every, every religious community, every community of intention is dealing with this right now, right? Because of the the incredible push away from valuing those kinds. Of, and I'm talking about the Kiwanis Club and the Masons. I'm talking about the Lions Club. I'm talking about the PTA, Dana Fine, right? I'm talking about the push away, Dana's a teacher, to, to the push away from um communal gathering, communal service, communal identity, communal participation into this individualistic, you know, every, everybody doing this. And I have to say, I have to interrupt and just say, I did send, I love the YouTube of your Rosh Hashanah day one sermon. And I sent it to my family and I said, it's 16 minutes. I think it's really going to grab you because 
everybody is on their phone and they are listening to 15 minute podcasts. Let them listen. I mean, that's the way to get the kiss. It's like, I want them to hear those kind of inspirational words. Yeah. So yep. thank you. Yeah. So we're trying, we're trying to put it out where, where people can. Good. Richard. Um, I just wanted to uh, follow up a bit on uh, what Bert started talking about when he was referring to Yom Kippur and the High Holy Days in general as sort of a gift from people who came before us. And uh, leaving aside the problems of the actual language, I think it's the intentionality of this annual ritual of reflection and self-examination. If we, Because it's not unique to us, it's just in some ways it's we've turned it into a regular structure that works for us. Like if you look at society as a whole, you know, Western society, that, you know, for 40, 50 years, books that are perennially on the bestseller lists are various types of help, self-help books. And how do you go about finding intentionality in your life? How do you go about finding purpose? How do you fix this? How do you fix that? And out in, in the, in the sort of in the broader society, there's this kind of like, well, you, you try to fix yourself whenever you get around to it or when you're in the mood to do it or whatever. And we've come up with this mechanism by which we're kind of forced to at least once a year, think about, okay, where did I fall short? What is it that I really want out of life? What's really important to me? And what am I going to do differently in the coming year from previous years to help make that happen? Right. And, uh, and we do it together. We do it the same day, right? Because if, um, some Thursday when I'm feeling moved, you know, to do that work, somebody else might not have time to listen, right? So um, I forget the British author that uh, wrote a book and he said, the Jews have this great tradition of they all say sorry on the same day. Because like, <laughs> it's really hard to pick a Wednesday afternoon you want to do that. That's number one. But number two, everyone's doing it. So it's not even right. So, and th- th- that's really helpful to the process is that everybody's doing it at the same time. Sarah? Having a fresh start is very good for Kishka anything. <laughs> I, I love the phrase Kishka Judaism, and it immediately brought me to the way my father celebrated Hanukkah. And I'll tell you quickly, we didn't have a menorah, but my mother had a kitchen tray that was white enamel with a blue rim. Interesting color. I remember those. And he put candles on it every night of Hanukkah and walked through the dark house with me trailing behind him, bringing light into every room. I think that was a very important experience. And parents who can invent those kinds of things for their children are doing work beyond words. 
Yes, right? Because that yeah. image of Kishka Judaism. That image of walking behind your dad and with he's bringing light on Hanukkah into the dark places, like that's Kishka Judaism at its best, right? Judaism that lives in your guts that you can't explain to anybody else. But you did beautifully, but I'm saying it's right that at that. And you're moved, I'm sure, every time you think of it. Really moved in a way that that is is something is our job to try to figure out how to create and to continue to create for each other. And right. Um, and so, George, I hear that you had your hand up. Is that true? Yes, I did. I want to tell a story. Uh, Twelve years ago, uh, when my wife died uh, in in. July, I then went to um, Rosh Hashanah services, a young, a young kipper, but in any case, when it said, um, you shall be written in the book, uh, and it's sealed, I started to cry. I cried so much I had to leave the services. Uh, luckily, there was a secretary outside who gave me a big hug and all. The rabbi then also came out or at the end of the service and uh, she uh, she said it wasn't uh, it didn't mean that my wife had sinned or anything uh, and not being written in the in the uh, in the book a good book but what it had a it had a major point of getting to me and that this, even though the words didn't mean what they meant, it had a major positive effect on me. I have no idea what, the, I mean, I know what the positive effect was, but it has, it, the meaningless of the words is the point that I'm raising. So tell me the positive effect it had on you. Oh, again, morning and and uh, uh, and also a rejection of those words. Yeah, that it was not that she had quote sinned or right. done wrong things. Right. Uh, so I'm just raising that despite the meaning of the words, it can still have major effects. Right, and for me, part of it is that. If you want to use the metaphor of written, things are going to happen that we can't control and things are going to happen that we don't know about right now. And it's, it's written. It's just so. And again, I'm using that as a metaphor. I don't believe in fate. I don't believe in any of that. But like when my father got diagnosed and was dead six months later and I was 35 years old taking care of him, that was written. Right. That that. That was going to happen. I had no idea the Rosh Hashanah before that, that that was going to happen. Right. And so I stand always with those words saying stuff's going to happen this year. It's beyond my control. What I can control is am I living a life that's ready to meet those moments, whatever they are? Am I building a community that can hold me through whatever's coming good and bad? Right. Am I am I about the business of doing what it's going to take to face? What if it's my death? What if it's my terminal illness? Am I living a life that I can face that? Right. And um, and and am I am I living a life that's going to allow me to hold even my own end in a certain way? So so for me, those are 
powerful resonances, right, around life and death and the fact that we don't have control over so much of what happens. And, of course, you know me. I'm always going to preach, and so we have to control and be responsive to what we can. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.